When we were planning this event some months ago, we didn't realize that it would fall on Ash Wednesday. I mean, when does Lent ever start in March? But upon reflection, it strikes me as rather fitting. Lent is a time of anticipation, a time of preparation, a time of entering more deeply into the mystery of Christ, and of course, a time of penance. And all of these things should characterize ecumenical dialogue. We live in the odd time where we have become rather comfortable with our Christian divisions, but we should never lose sight of the fact that Jesus desired that his church should be one and that our divisions contradict the will of Christ. This calls us to penance, but it, but it also calls us to hope hope that Christ will find a way to reunite us, though that way is not at all clear to anyone right now. It is also fitting that we have this dialogue at Hope College. Hope is a unique place, which describes itself as ecumenical in character and rooted in the Reformed tradition. Hope is a remarkable place, a Protestant institution that has created not only a position in Catholic studies, which I hold, but which has enthusiastically sought out a covenant partnership with the local Catholic Church, and which has welcomed that church's academic and missionary wing, the St. Benedict Forum, which is co-sponsoring this event, along with the generous support of the Religion Department, the Philosophy Department, Campus Ministries, and the Office of the Provost. I can think of no better person to help us advance Catholic and Reform dialogue at Hope than Eduardo Echeverria. Most of us in academia have at least one friend who seems to have written about everything. A typical conversation with this person goes like this. Hey, I was thinking about such and such profound theological topic the other day. And his response invariably is, oh yes, I wrote an article on that last year. Eduardo is one of those friends. His scholarship covers questions of faith and reason, natural theology, hermeneutics, human sexuality, redemptive suffering, sin and grace, the new evangelization, John Paul the Great, Benedict XVI, Birkauer, Bavinck, Gadamer, and of course, Catholic Reform Dialogue. If you have $200, you can pick up his newest book on <laughs> Birkauer and Catholicism. Don't blame me, it's Brill. <laughs> But what has impressed me most about Eduardo's scholarship, aside from its sheer volume, is that it is ecumenical, even when it does not have to be. Even in his Catholic scholarship, when he's dealing with Catholic theologians and internal Catholic debates, he will liberally quote Reformed theologians. Eduardo embodies the receptive ecumenism and the dialogue of love, which the best Catholic ecumenists have called for. Dr. Echeverria will speak on Catholic and Reformed ecumenism, basis, boundaries, and benefits. His talk will be followed by a brief response from Dr. Mark Husbands, our very own chair of Reformed theology, and then we'll have time for questions. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Eduardo Echeverria. Thank you. I think, I think I turned it on, so, okay. Um, 
I'm going to have to take off my glasses. I, I, th these glasses, I, I normally have nerd strings, you know, but uh, they don't fit. The nerd strings don't fit this particular frame. So, and I don't need glasses to read uh, when I'm looking at my text. So I'm going to take them off. You'll be a little blurry, but not, not significantly so. Um, what I'd like to do is to begin with a, a reading from uh, what is rightly seen as uh, and has been called uh, the Magna Carta of, um, of ecumenism. And I just realized that I, it's in my phone. Um, oh, of course. So, of course, I meant to bring my, my Bible and I left it in my other bag. But so I want to begin then with a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, that uh, Dr. Ortiz uh, referred to, just to provide a, 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 a context and, and maybe refresh our memories as to what Jesus actually says there. Um, he says, uh, so this is Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father, and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, Jesus continues, but, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. So, this is what I want to do today. I, I want to I start out by, uh, by talking uh, uh, briefly about uh, uh, three attitudes that, uh, that are characteristic of uh, the Reformed tradition and its stance towards uh, Catholicism. Um, and then I want to uh, um, uh, identify some things that, that I think uh, typically um, Reformed Protestants and perhaps even e Evangelical Protestants, uh, Protestants in general, have gone through in order to get to the third attitude. So I see this as a kind of a trajectory. Uh, and so then I want to identify some things that, uh, that actually are uh, uh, steps that people take in order to get to a more positive stance toward the Catholic uh, tradition. Uh, and you'll see I'll, I'll identify, you know, uh, three or four uh, such things. So uh, I begin then by, you know, identifying uh, those, uh, those three attitudes. Uh, the first two are, are really uh, negative attitudes. Uh, uh, the, the first attitude is such that uh, it's remained uh, largely untouched 
uh, by a half a century of uh, ecumenical uh, dialogue between the Catholic Church and, and, uh, uh, and other, other uh, Christian uh, traditions, other confessional traditions, whether, whether it's Methodist or Reformed or Lutheran, uh, uh, Anglican, whatever. Uh, they've remained largely untouched uh, by, by those ecumenical conversations, and so they feel very little inclination to reevaluate their the traditional sort of stance. These are folk, I, I would say, and I mean this nicely, but these are folk, in fact, who they're still in the 16th century as far as the, the, the stance, so that when, you, when they read things, if they read things that Catholics write, it's still through that grid. And so they've, they've, they've not engaged in any reevaluation of that. And then you have, um, you have uh, those in the Reformed tradition who, um, who have participated perhaps even in ecumenical conversation, but uh, have not been persuaded that Catholic, that the church, that the Catholic Church has actually addressed the issues of the, of the Reformation, the questions that were uh, questions about the authority of Scripture, uh, the relationship between Scripture and tradition, justification and sanctification, and uh, the papacy, and so on. Um, and so they too have not really uh, reconsidered their stance towards the Catholic Church. Uh, and and the, the thing about those first two stances is that they, they, tend, to be, uh, they tend to be primarily uh, um, uh, apologetical uh, uh, with respect to the, to the Catholic Church. The third stance, the third stance is uh, a stance that um, it, you know, has stepped back and has uh, reconsidered uh, it's more positive. It's reconsidered the, the traditional issues that separated Catholics and Protestants, some of the ones that I've just mentioned. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're prepared to, uh, to take another look, uh, to take another look. Uh, so they're prepared to actually engage in positive ecumenical conversation. They may even, in fact, they do, they regard uh, Catholics as fellow Christians, as ecumenical partners in conversation, and so on. Um, and so they want to take a fresh, constructive uh, 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 reappraisal of the traditional issues that separate Catholics and Protestants. And there's a certain, I, I think there's a kind of a trajectory there that uh, sometimes people start out with the first attitude, they, they know really nothing about ecumenical conversations, uh, they haven't read, uh, et cetera, and so they're, they're untouched. And then, and then maybe they, they, they start getting into a conversation, reading uh, Catholic stuff and, and so on, and then eventually they make uh, another move. They make the move towards a positive, let's look at it again, uh, constructive reevaluation of those issues that separate uh, Catholics and Protestants. And the question, the question I, I want to ask is, how, how is it that they get to that place? How is it that they get to the place uh, that they seek to engage in a fresh, constructive, and critical evaluation, both of the contemporary teaching and practice of the Roman Catholic Church and of the classical uh, controverted issues? Uh, how did they get there? 
Well, I want to suggest uh, that there are several steps that people take. There are several steps that people take. And uh, the first step that they take is, uh, I want to call, uh, they become accidental Protestants. Uh, following uh, Reinhard Hutter, Catholic theologian from Duke University, uh, I make a distinction between essential Protestants and accidental Protestants. An essential Protestant is someone who actually defines, defines himself in terms of the Catholic tradition. And so he needs the Catholic tradition as, as, as the other. As the other. Um, Reinhard Hutter puts it this way. He says, essential Protestantism requires for its identity Catholicism as the other. Much of essential Protestantism, he says, assumes that at the time of the Reformation, the true gospel lost or at least significantly distorted shortly after the Apostle Paul was rediscovered and the church in the true sense reconstituted, he says. He continues, he says, virtually everything in between, the few exceptions only affirming the rule, pertains to the aberration of Roman Catholicism. Essential Protestants, therefore, in a large measure, need Roman Catholicism, and especially the papacy, to know itself, to have a hold of its identity as Protestantism. So an essential Protestant is someone who rejects Catholicism because it's Catholicism. Because it's Catholicism. In contrast, we have the accidental Protestant. And the accidental Protestant is, is someone who says this. Uh, in fact, Peter Leithard, a Presbyterian, recently called for the end of Protestantism. The Reformation isn't over, but Protestantism, by which he meant the essential Protestant, that should come to an end. Someone like uh, Burkhauer, the, 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 the master of, uh, the Dutch master of uh, uh, dogmatics and ecumenical theology, um, in his writings, eventually, he started out with the first two attitudes that I briefly described and eventually came to embody the third attitude. Um, and uh, he did not identify the Reformation with Protestantism. He saw Protestantism as essentially a renewal movement within the Church Catholica, the Church Catholic, which is not the same thing as the Catholic Church. And so the, the, the accidental Protestant, um, he, sees, he, he sees Protestantism as the result of a particular specific protestation. It sees itself to a large degree as a, as a reform movement in the church Catholic. Uh, Hutter says, for accidental Protestants, there tends to be one fundamental difference, something that is so fundamental that, that he can't come into full communion with the Catholic church for that reason. It can be the Petrine office itself, for instance. It can be uh, Marian dogma, Mary, uh, the Mariological principle, Mary's place in the plan of salvation in the communion of saints, that prevents, that prevents the, the accidental Protestant from being Catholic. And this difference, Hutter says, cannot be just any, but must be one without which the truth of the gospel is decisively distorted or even abandoned. But, but being Protestant in this vein amounts to an emergency position. You know, it's like uh, Carl Bratton, the, uh, the 
uh, evangelical Lutheran, the Catholic evangelical Lutheran, Catholic with a small c, the, one of the founders of the journal Pro Ecclesia and the Center for Evangelical and Catholic Theology. Um, he wrote a book once, a very fine book called uh, Mother Church, Ecclesiology and Ecumenism. And in that book, he describes his position or the position of the Lutheran Church um, uh, initially as uh, the church in exile. The key thing is that he, he, it's an emergency position, necessary for the sake of the gospel's truth and the church's faithfulness. In short, accidental Protestantism does not understand itself as ecclesial normalcy. Now, I argue in my book, I argue in an article recently in First Things, the journal First Things, that Berkauer, uh, Gerrits Cornelius Berkauer, is, was uh, an, an accidental Protestant. Um, and he was an accidental Protestant, I say, because he understood the Reformation to be a renewal movement within the Church Catholica, and hence not just about Protestantism. The Reformation is not over, Lightheart says, but Protestantism, essential Protestantism, should come to an end. So that's the first thing. But then I, have, I want, you know, this distinction between essential and accidental Protestantism. But then I want to ask the question, well, how did Burkhauer get to be an, an accidental Protestant? Or how does one become an accidental Protestant? Well, at one point, Burkhauer began to, to ask himself the question, what's the import of confessing the church's confession, credo unum ecclesium. What's the import of confessing, remember there are four marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What's the import for the division among Christians of confessing that the church is one? In respect of the division among Christians and hence visible visible disunity in the church. Well, in the first place, Burkhauer is persuaded that the New Testament teaches that there is only one church. There's only one church. One church here and now, rather than many churches. And this church, he says, is the concrete, visible church. And so he wants to argue that the, the very nature of the church, the being of the church, he says, in uh, volume one of his, uh, he wrote two volumes on the church. Uh, Burkhardt wrote 18 volumes, Studies in Dogmatics, and he wrote two volumes on the Kerk, huh? the, so the church was translated into English in one volume. Uh, th there was no abridgment of it. And so he says, the being of the church as will by God implies unity. Our conviction that the plural for church is an inner contradiction is confirmed by the numerous characterizations of the, of, of the church of Christ in the whole of the New Testament, he says. The one people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the building of God, the flock of the good shepherd. These images indicate, he says, in various ways, the one reality of the church. Therefore, he says, unity belongs to the church's being. The, the expression of, quote, one church is really an oxymoron, he says. Of course, Burkhauer is fully aware that there is diversity 
There's ecclesial diversity. But it is the pluriformity of the church, he says. It's not a plurality of churches. It is the pluriformity of the church, not a plurality of churches, he says. Yes, there is division among Christians, disunity in the one church, but this division, he says, is the fruit of human sin. And such disunity is sharply placed, Burkhauer says, under the criticism of the gospel. Therefore, he says, there must be another way to do justice to the pluriformity of the one church. Now, again, it's significant that Burkhauer develops an ecclesiology in which the unity of the church, given the church's pluriformity, is not shifted into the future. Because sometimes people say, you know, the marks of the church, one holy Catholic apostolic, the, the, you know, the oneness of the church, they, they futurize it, they eschatal, eschatologize it, so that the church will only be one, you know, with the return of Christ. Um, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't shift it into the future, nor does he, nor does he make it a purely uh, an, an, uh, an invisible church. With the latter, the Ecclesia Invisibilis, huh? the invisible church, with the latter seeking to make everything dependent on the already present but hidden unity of the invisible church. So he's not a, if you've taken courses in, in uh, Christology, you know one of the early heresies that the church confronted was do docetism. In other words, that, that, that Christ, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Word of God, the Incarnate Word, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, didn't really become man. He just took on the appearance of man. And so Burkauer rejects an ecclesiological docetism because he thinks that the one church is here and now one. Um, nor does Burkauer turn to a, a conception of unity in terms of federation, so a confederation of churches. No. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, the, uh, the Anglican, uh, now deceased bishop, in his first book, The Household of God, that he wrote in 1952, uh, Newbegin uh, once wrote, and Burkhauer agrees, he says, the, uh, Newbegin says, the disastrous error, uh, error of the idea of federation is that it offers us reunion without repentance because it accepts the division as, a, as, a, as the, the state of affairs, that that's the way it should be. Rather, Burkhauer's ecclesiology seeks to examine the concrete, visible church and does so by placing her in the light of pluriformity. And pluriformity is not just another name for division. It is positive. If this recognition of positive traces of the church in other churches is not to result in ecclesiological relativism, how is one to think concretely of the church's relation to other churches? Now, uh, I, I'm not here to answer that question. Uh, I'm simply here to say uh, that Burkhauer's commitment to credo unum ecclesium and the implications of, of that confession, that mark of the church, uh, contributed to his, to his concern for um, ecumenism, the recognition that uh, the church, uh, that Christians are divided and that the division among Christians is a fruit of sin, and, that's, and that we're under, the, uh, we're under the criticism of the gospel and under the criticism of Jesus' imperative that they all shall be one. So that's another, that's, that's another thing. That's another thing that, 
that I think helps a person who is thinking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, division in the church to think about the, the you know, the, the confession, Credo Unum Ecclesium, that contributed to, uh, to Birkauer's shift in his stance towards, uh, <coughs> towards Catholicism. Um, the other thing that I think that, that contributed uh, uh, to it is Burkhauer's stance with respect to uh, uh, ecclesial texts, confessions, um, and particularly with respect to the confessions, not only but with respect to Catholic confessions of the Council of, of, of Trent and, uh, and uh, the First Vatican Council, Council of Trent in the, in the, in the 16th, first half of the 16th century and, and uh, the Council of uh, the First Vatican Council, 1869-1870. And here Burkhauer operates with a principle in the way that he interprets uh, ecclesial texts such as the decrees of Trent and Vatican I. Uh, and, and essentially this, this principle says that, that we should not make judgments about, let's say, the councils of Trent and Vatican I without understanding the integral totality of Catholicism. Because the statements of these councils were polemical and they were antithetical. And in that sense, they were historically conditioned. In other words, all truth formulated for polemical reasons is partial, albeit true. It's partial, albeit true. It may be the whole truth about something, but it doesn't necessarily um, uh, formulate uh, the whole truth. Birkauer refers us to uh, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar's understanding of this, of this methodological, this hermeneutical principle in, in, in reading and interpreting ecclesial texts. And Balthasar, in his book on Bart, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bart, uh, the, the, the two books uh, that Bart thought were probably the best books ever written on his work. One was Burkhauer's book, uh, The Triumph of Grace in the Theology of Karl Barth, and the other one was uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar's book on uh, Karl Barth. But B Balthasar explains this, this methodological principle, and he says, even though, of course, the truth of the Councils of Trent and Vatican I will never be overtaken or even relativized, because the Church, uh, the, the Council of Trent and the, Council, and the Va First Vatican I does not commit the Church to any formal error, uh, but that doesn't mean that, the council, that those councils said everything that needs to be said, even about, for instance, the sacraments. Uh, the decrees on, on, on the sacraments in, in, in Trent uh, didn't say everything that needs to be said about the sacraments, and Vatican I as well. Um, but, so Balthasar says, even though, of course, the truth of the councils of Trent and Vatican I will never be overtaken or even relativized, nonetheless, there are still other views and aspects of revelation than those expressed there. This has always happened throughout church history. When new statements are brought forth to complete earlier insights in order to do justice to the inexhaustible riches of divine revelation, even in the earthen vessel of human language, uh, says Balthasar. So Trent and Vatican I on this account remain normative for the Catholic faith. Still, we can draw a distinction between criticizing uh, their incomplete or unbalanced formulations of the truth, offering a later interpretation that's, that's a more comprehensive and balanced formulation of the full truth of the councils on the one hand, and claiming that these councils formally committed 
the church to doctrinal error. So attending to this error, for instance, allows Burkhauer in the discussions about the relationship between scripture and tradition to actually go back and look at and ask the question, well, what is it that Trent actually taught about the relationship between scripture and tradition? And what is, it, what is in fact the position of the Catholic Church on the relationship between scripture and tradition? Again, this is a, also a long conversation, but Burkhauer was able to say that, uh, that the council, in fact, never taught what, what's considered to be the position on scripture and tradition of the church, that, that, that these two sources of revelation are materially incomplete, they supplement each other, uh, that, 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 uh, that revelation comes down partly through the channel of scripture, partly through the channel of tradition. Uh, Burkhauer not only says that, uh, that that's not the position of the Catholic Church, that in fact, yes, it was the dominant view between the 16th and the 19th century, but it's not the view but also in going back and looking at Trent, he's influenced by uh, Catholic theologians, uh, Josef Rupert Heiselmann and Henri de Lubac and Donna Lu and Congar and others. And then, con and then uh, he concludes, in fact, that that's not even what Trent teaches. So what happens is that, uh, that he thinks that, that uh, later councils or later, uh, later on the church is able to go back and... Uh, provide a more comprehensive and balanced formulation of the full truth that was affirmed by those councils. Because those council documents are, are even though the, the whole truth is affirmed in those councils, uh, it's not fully formulated or even formulated in a, in a comprehensive way and maybe it's formulated in an imbalanced way. And so this, this principle for reading ecclesial texts, says Burkhauer, is of ecumenical significance when ecumenical partners accept that the church's formulation of the truth, here I'm quoting Burkhauer, he says, the church's formulation of the truth could have for various reasons actually occasion misunderstandings of the truth itself. In other words, the formulation or expression itself of the truth could be characterized by one-sidedness, he says, because the church has not been elevated above historical relativity in its analysis of the rejected error. So I'll give you an, an example. Congar, um, uh, uh, Yves Congar, a, a French uh, ecumenical Catholic uh, uh, Dominican, uh, uh, he, in, 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 his, uh, true, in his work, True and False Reform in the Church, he distinguishes two types of one-sidedness. First, he says there is the possibility that this formulation made in reaction to an error characterized by unilateralism should itself become unilateral, one-sided in its expression. And next there is the possibility, says Congar, that the condemnation might include, in it, might include in its condemnation of the erroneous reactive element the seeds of truth as well, whose original ambivalence unfortunately became deviant. And here's an example of that, of that second type of uh, one-sidedness. Pius XI, in, uh, in his 1928 encyclical Mortalium, Mortalium Animos, he has a negative attitude toward the ecumenical movement. He has a negative attitude towards the ecumenical movement. He says in that encyclical in 1928, he says, this movement denied the visible unity of the Church of Christ. Uh, it appears that, uh, that ecumenism 
uh, is not about uh, uh, the visible unity of the one church. So it's not about one body of faithful agreeing in one and the same doctrine under one teaching authority and governance. On the contrary, he says, some in the ecumenical movement, he says, understand a visible church is nothing else than a federation or a confederation of churches composed of various communities of Christians, even though they adhere to different doctrines, which may even be incompatible with one another. It may even be contradictory. Well, the Pope condemned those views because they were based on an ecclesiological relativism or uh, an, an unmitigated pluralism, offering reunion without repentance, fostering a kind of a false irenicism, an easy kind of reconciliation, and hence a religious indifferentism, so a doctrinal uh, indifference, appearing only on the surface to be a unifying link. Now, you can say, in the light of Vatican II's decree on ecumenism, uh, so Vatican II is between 62 and 65, and in the light of John Paul II's 1995 encyclical, Ut Unum Sint, that they all may be one, uh, that Pius XI was right in rejecting these views is false. But he was incorrect in his analysis that the rejected errors were inherent to ecumenism, with the latter as such jeopardizing the dogma that the Catholic Church is in some fundamental sense the one visible church of God in space and time, the fully and rightly ordered expression of the, Catholic, uh, the, fully and rightly ordered expression of the body of Christ in space and time. Now, Burkhauer understands uh, not only the second type of one-sidedness, but he, but he gives us an understanding of the first type of one-sidedness. In his uh, 1964 study on Vatican II, he, he says, an unmistakable limitation, he says, and even in a sense an overshadowing of the fullness of truth is created by the defensive and polemical character of dogmatic pronouncements, he says. Thus, Trent judged the Reformation sola fide, as a vain confidence, but failed, he says, to delineate what could rightfully have been intended by the phrase sola fide. So maintaining Trent's, I, go, I say now, so maintaining Trent's fundamental teaching on justification and the relation between scripture and tradition is consistent with affirming a more comprehensive and balanced formulation of that teaching as a fruit of serious theological dialogue. And that's exactly what Burkhauer says. He says the historical and polemical conditionness of church pronouncements must be respected, he says. It seems both necessary and almost self-evident that previous pronouncements of dogma must be interpreted in this light, he says. The interpretation need not bear the character of a revision, which gives a new and different meaning to the dogma in order to make it acceptable to a new era. No. That would be unacceptable, really if it's defined as de fide. But dogma, he says, must be understood in the light of revelation and of the intention of the church as that intention came to expression in a given period of history. So the ecumenical import of, of Burkhauer's, uh, uh, the way he approaches ecclesial texts, is, I think, evident. Theological dialogue open, uh, open to a fuller grasp of the truth may show that apparently opposed positions may be compatible at a deeper level may be compatible at a deeper level. Now, uh, so I think that's another aspect that contributed to Burkhauer's uh, reassessment of his stance towards the Catholic Church. 
But, but there, are some more, there are some other, even more uh, practical uh, measures. And, and I want to say uh, a few things about them. Uh, the first is the relationship between renewal, conversion, and reform. Renewal, conversion, and reform. When, you, uh, when you're under the... When, you, when, you, when you're under the authority of the Word of God, under the authority of, of what Jesus says in, in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, um, you understand that division is under the judgment of God. And so that leads to, that leads to renewal. That's going to lead to renewal, reconsideration. Um, uh, John Paul II, in, his, uh, in, in that encyclical I mentioned, the 1995 encyclical Utunum Sint, he says, On the eve of his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus himself prayed to the Father for his disciples and for all those who believe in him, that they might be one, a living communion. This is the basis, the Pope says, not only of the duty, but also of the responsibility before God and his plan which falls to those who through baptism become members of the body of Christ, a body in which the fullness of reconciliation and communion must be made present, he says. How is it possible, the Pope says, to remain divided if we have been buried, quote-unquote, through baptism in the Lord's death, in the very act by which God, through the death of His Son, has broken down the walls of division? Division, he quotes, uh, uh, the decree on ecumenism, unitatis red integratio, the restoration of unity. Uh, that's what that means, uh, for those of you who don't know Latin. Um, um, division openly contradicts the will of Christ, provides a stumbling block to the world, and inflicts damage on the most holy cause of proclaiming the good news to every creature. And so, when you're under, when you, when you're under the authority of that imperative, which is, which is Christ's imperative, then that, that imperative calls for renewal. But it not only calls for renewal, it also calls for conversion, an interior conversion. There can be no ecumenical conversation, genuine ecumenical conversation, without interior conversion. So there's a need for interior conversion. Uh, in fact, uh, again, uh, the decree on ecumenism, Vatican II, says there can be no ecumenism worthy of the name without a change of heart. So that means accepting the mutual responsibility, uh, mutual meaning both Catholics and Protestants, the mutual responsibility for the division in the church. So uh, renewal, conversion, reform. Huh? And that, of course, the reform, of course, is going to mean... Um, actively working uh, through dialogue, not just formal dialogue, but dialogue in, in, in all kinds of situations and, and ways of bringing about that, uh, that renewal, that visible unity of the church. So uh, uh, those, three, those three elements have to be 